Hey everybody, welcome back to the Metaverse Podcast hosted by me, Jamie Burke, founder and CEO of Outlier Ventures. Our mission is to accelerate the open metaverse based on principles around the sovereignty of identity, data, and wealth. On this podcast, we meet leading founders, creators, and innovators, and hear their personal stories and mission to make the metaverse more open. On today's episode, we're talking to an important voice and leader in crypto. Um, As an organization, you know, probably a, a group of people that have a data set or kind of feel on the market pretty much unparalleled in the space. Um, and I guess a platform that's been responsible for birthing many new token economies. We've got Coinlist CEO, Graham Jenkins. Welcome, Graham. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for inviting me. So where do we start? Um, you've just done a raise, um, closed $100 million at $1.5 billion valuation. So firstly, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Excited guess, about it. Yeah. And I guess like at any other time, that would seem obscene. <laughs> but, you know, right. the last kind of quarter, it, it's like every month you're hearing you know, well-established firms like yourself, you know, closing these kinds of money, capitalizing for growth. Um, And I think really kind of indicative of where we are in the cycle, you know, every what week or so there's a correction, everyone panics. They say it's going to be like 2018. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I look at, you know, organizations like Coinlist, the growth that you're enjoying, you know, yeah. how easy, relatively easy it is for you to raise money. You know, similarly, compare that to the growth we're enjoying. And it just feels like we're, we've got a long way to go before there might be any kind of serious correction, right? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think you're right. In, in another time, it would have been an obscene amount. Um, I guess now obscene is 420 million from 69 investors. Yeah. (laughs) Valuation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, it's funny that you say that, um, that it's relatively easy. I mean, we, we took a really long time to do this race and, uh, you know, Scott Keto, who's uh, SCOO and I, uh, kind of went through that process of, uh, almost a year and, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting when we got started, we we're doing the usual suspect type conversations. You know, we we're talking with uh, the typical VCs that you would expect an uh, emerging technology company to talk with. And um, somewhere along the way, we kind of realized, hey, you know what? We, we're meant to be a bridge to a decentralized future. Uh, our cap table should probably reflect that to some extent. Right. And uh, so we started to really kind of broaden uh, the base of investors that we talked with and started talking with investors in the regions where we were growing the fastest uh, and are still growing the fastest. So, you know, Middle East, Eastern Europe, Asia, and uh, really diversified the set of investors that we talked with, uh, which ended up kind of making the process a little bit longer. But I think we ended up with uh, an awesome group of investors that can really help us think through strategy with respect to how we grow in those regions. So, uh, took a long time, but, uh, 
Yeah, it might it might look easy with the, no, yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, I did, the blog I did, post, but yeah, I said relatively because <laughs> Rel- relatively, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, of course, like fundraising is never easy. I mean, even if even if you're a very deserving business like yours and you've got the right growth trajectory and the market's growing, um, it, 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 it's yeah. still never easy. And especially, you know, when when you're at the stage where there there are fundamentals to, to really do analysis on. Um, and yeah. but you've been enjoying great user growth, right? You know, you mentioned some of the regions there. I know you've grown forty two x globally, thirty six x within the European Union, sixty two x in Asia. You're operating, or you have users across one hundred and seventy plus countries now. So, um, you know that that kind of growth is a is a truly kind of global story, and we're going to get into that a little bit later um also really want to understand you know, i mentioned at the top you, you kind of got this great you, you act as a great um kind of data point on on the market similar to us in a way as an early stage accelerator you're kind of seeing what's coming to the market um ahead of the wider market um so you're both kind of a good barometer on the market as a whole but then also um uh can you bring a lot of insights into trends that we're seeing and I know you've got coin the seed which kind of goes uh, even earlier into that process so definitely want to kind of tap your mind as to insights that you're kind of synthesizing across coin list um, and you know we've we've had a, a good working relationship you know with you guys as a team um, sure. I believe several projects have gone through Coinless Seed. Neither of us could remember which ones they are. <laughs> but again, that's that's also indicative of you know the, the, the volume of projects that we're both working with now. Um, but I do know more recently, um, Bico of Biconomy had something like eight hundred thousand registrations, and you know exactly how many of those are unique. So we'll, we'll, again, we'll get into a little bit later, um, but still. A very large number raised over eleven point five million dollars, and I think in the end it turned out to be about twelve thousand participants. Which again, like when we started to hear those numbers coming through, we kind of fell off our chair. And it also just served as a, a, another really good data point, you know, that there is real demand there. Um, and I'd be really interested to kind of get your gauge, you know, what we're seeing in our accelerator, which is typically taking pre-seed seed startups. And then helping them kind of close that seed round, we're seeing what I can only describe as an overcapitalization in the market. There's just not enough good startups for the amount of capital that's wanting to come in. And of course, that does um, perverse things to the market. I'm sure um, neither of us are complaining about, but nevertheless, yeah. it is, it is, it's going to be interesting to kind of pick your brains on what we're seeing at market level, how sustainable you think it is. And, yeah. Uh, well, the market's definitely changed a lot. And, you know, in thinking about growth, um, I mean, Jamie, you covered a bunch of topics, <laughs> bunch of topics there. So just to unpack some of those things, I mean, just thinking about growth, uh, you know, when we got started, uh, which was in 2017, uh, our focus was on U.S. accredited investors. And I think even today, a lot of people still think of CoinList as a platform for U.S. accredited. And the market has shifted almost like directly the opposite in terms of it being very much focused on um, an audience that's outside of the US. And uh, and also the other big change is that you know, back then, back in 2017, teams would tend to, they would tend to raise large, much larger amounts from smaller numbers of investors. 
And really what's happening now is that a lot of the teams, by the time they get listed on a coin list, they've already done their VC rounds, et cetera. Uh, so it's less about the capital. And a big part of the reason why they're coming to us is because they want to have a large community of engaged token holders. And um, some capital comes along with that, some money comes along with that, but it's really about working with CoinList in order to, to get that large audience of active users. And so that, that's really been a big part of the change over the last couple of years. And you know, the other thing that you mentioned there too was, was that uh, you know, right now, it's just given the overcapitalization in the market, uh, you know, there's questions about quality of team, et cetera. I mean, a couple of years ago, obviously going through the, the winter, 2018, 2019, um, it was the the opposite situation, obviously. You know, we just had very little capital coming into the market, very few uh, projects coming through. Uh, But really what we've seen is with that additional capital coming in now, uh, just the quality of the teams has increased. The the number of high-quality teams has increased. And so that's been a really big change, certainly in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, which is really exciting for the industry, I think. Uh, and then the other thing is that we've seen a, a massive evolution of the types of projects that are coming through the pipeline. Uh, a couple of years ago, just about every project we looked at was a Ethereum competitor or Ethereum killer or a smart contract layer one platform. And uh, that's really shifted pretty dramatically. And I, th- I think we're seeing a lot, a lot more... Obviously, with with DeFi, we've seen a lot of applications, a lot of focus on applications. Uh, we're seeing more layer twos, more rollups. Uh, so, uh, and then and then I think a, another aspect of that change has been the the types of verticals that these projects are focused on. And I, I think certainly in the last couple of years, again, DeFi has been a big focus. But now we're seeing a big push in gaming. I guess that's really been there for the last year. A big push into gaming. Uh, and then we've also seen projects attacking almost every vertical that was built over the last 20, 30 years uh, throughout the internet age. You know, search, we've seen search projects, we've seen e-commerce projects, we've seen social. Uh, so it's almost like for all of those verticals that were built over the course of the internet age, it seems as if they're being rebuilt using decentralized technologies, which we're really excited about. And, uh, you know, there was definitely a concern a couple of years ago, you know, how many more tokens are there going to be? Uh, and, you know, with this new perspective or new movement within the industry around potentially not just focusing on finance, but every vertical, every software vertical out there, um, we think there's going to be thousands more projects and uh, really excited about it. Yeah. And, you know, whenever I speak to people, journalists or whatever, who are trying to wrap their head around the space and, you know, they always ask, well, like how many cryptocurrencies can there possibly be? And you say, well, look, they're not cryptocurrencies. And like when you start, you know, they're not all cryptocurrencies. And when you start going beyond that um, and understanding, as you say, all these kind of range, diverse range of applications, you know, there is a good argument to say you could almost tokenize everything. Of course, NFTs take it into a slightly different territory. But, you know, we're certainly talking about a universe of hundreds of thousands of of tokens, um, you know, if not millions um, over the next couple of decades, right? Which seems obscene to say, but then again, um, as you point out, if you apply it to 
you know, to all the different use cases that are possible on the web today, you know, seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing. Even uh, certainly mainstream media looks at the industry in terms of the the finance side or actually really just the, the currency or money side. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about crypto as money and that's very much the focus. And even within the industry, a lot of people are very much just focused on the value of tokens and the, the finance or the financialization side of the industry. And uh, I think what that's, that's really missing this whole revolution that's happening with this set of technologies. And it, it's a, it is a revolution in software development. You know, th- with these technologies, you can build, it's, it's a completely new way of building, distributing, and almost infinitely, potentially infinitely running software. And, uh, you know, that just hasn't really existed before. And, uh, you know, every, again, every piece of software that was built over the course of the internet age is, is potentially, you know, under threat, at least in terms of, you know, having some decentralized competitor. And I, I just don't, I don't really hear a lot of people in the industry talking that way. I think a lot of people are still very much focused on uh, the mainstreaming of crypto and very much focused on uh, markets, you know, number go up, number go down. And uh, there's just less of a focus on, uh, you know, there are thousands of teams out there building real software applications with real use cases that are using decentralized technologies. And, uh, you know, the sky's the limit on what we can do with this stuff. Yeah. And of course, you know, coming back to the the idea of utility rather than it just being a speculative asset. Not that, I mean, I I always hate when people like talk about speculation as a dismissive. I think you're basically talking about price discovery, which is a good thing in a functioning market. But um, but actually, you know, if you if you have utility, what we're really talking about is tokens as coordination mechanisms for digital economies, right, or or systems, distributed systems, as, as you say. So, um, yeah, in, these in are case, yeah, they're incentive it's, mechanisms, right? It's it's about like driving a community of people to behave a certain way, and the tokens end up being that incentive mechanism. Uh, and maybe that's obvious. We've you know we've been in this space. Uh, quite a while, and we we all we all sort of understand that that's the case, but but uh, you know I think that gets a little bit lost in the the crypto is money narrative, you know. Yeah. So look, before we we kind of break down Coinless, because you know you've got a number of business areas now, some really well established, and and some that I know you're rolling out. Um, but it'd be good to kind of just give some context to you as a founder to the listeners. Um, so. Actually, rather deceivingly, you're from Australia, but like there's a lot of actors from deceivingly. Australia. Deceivingly. Yeah. You know, you're hiding that one pretty well. In fairness, I'm from Manchester. <laughs> I definitely don't sound like I'm from Manchester. So, you know, we, we, we all uh, have acclimatized, to, I guess, to, to where we live. But you, you definitely sound like you're more West Coast than uh, from Brisbane. Well, I think, I think as most people know, as soon as they have a couple of Guinnesses, then the accent <laughs> comes back out. Yeah, and it's Foster's, right? We all drink Foster's <laughs> in Australia. Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah, forgot about that. Yeah, forgot about that. Now we know. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, so I know you were at Google. You were UX manager, designer. You were Bank of America again in design. Um, perhaps, well, it looked to me perhaps most relevant was um, your time at AngelList. And I wanted to understand how analogous AngelList was 
to CoinList, whether that was the thing that inspired you to go on and co-found CoinList or? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, and uh, there was a group of us that ended up spinning CoinList out of AngelList. Uh, and we could go, we could sort of dig back deep in a, in a AngelList. I mean, AngelList got started around about the time that the the Bitcoin white paper was written. And, you know, the context of that time was, uh, you know, global financial crisis, not a lot of capital out there was getting put into startups. And, uh, you know, Naval Ravikant and Babak Nivi, the founders of AngelList, uh, they're very philosophical people. Um, and they also had, had sort of sat on both sides of the fence, as it were. They'd been investors as well as entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, they kind of had this philosophy at that time that, uh, you know, humankind moves forward through a bunch of different things, but primarily, at least in the 21st century, humankind moves forward through technology, technological advancement. And, you know, most great technological advancements come from these large tech companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. And all of those companies were started as startups, uh, you know, a couple of people in a garage, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and if there's a dearth of capital out there to invest in startups, then that has ripple effects in terms of the advancement of all of us. And so they were concerned about that. And, uh, you know, they started to write, actually, I think it was Nivi that, that started writing, uh, trying to educate entrepreneurs on how to negotiate a term sheet uh, that ended up becoming a blog called Venture Hacks. Uh, VentureX ended up experimenting in a couple of different ways to try to make the fundraising process more efficient for entrepreneurs. <clears throat> and that eventually created Angelist. They created a, a mailing list of angels, Naval and Nivy's friends, um, who they would distribute startups who had approached them through the blog. Uh, they would distribute those startups to those investors. And uh, you know that kind of demand that came out of those emails ended up kind of forcing VCs to move quicker and rounds got closed faster as a result of that. And then we ended up productizing that and building out AngelList, the platform, uh, which was just, you know, basically a, a web form on top of <laughs> that email distribution. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of how we got started. I joined, uh, I joined those guys out of, out of Google in 2011 and, uh, was really excited about what they were doing, uh, Actually, that's kind of an interesting, a little bit of an interesting diversion to the story. Uh, you know, when I was finishing my time at Google, um, I was going through the process of pitching some angel investors. And, uh, you know, just like every other fool in Silicon Valley, I had my pitch deck, I had my startup ideas and uh, was thinking I was going to leave Google to start my own thing, you know. And uh, through that process, uh, somebody that I'd worked with at, at Google, uh, Alad Gill, introed me to Naval. And uh, it was kind of partly, you know, me thinking I could pitch this guy and <laughs> partly him talking to me about AngelList. And, uh, you know, I gave him a, a bit of a high level on some of my startup ideas then. And he's like, look, your, your ideas are stupid. Don't <laughs> do any of this stuff. Uh, just come and work for me. And, you know, I'll teach you everything I can teach you about how to pitch investors, how to raise capital, uh, you know, what kind of patterns investors are looking for. Um, and that's what you learn in within six months of being at AngelList. You learn that, and then after six months, you can go off and start your your dumb startup. And I'll I'll give you twenty five k, and you'll be on your way. And uh, so I thought it was just going to be like a, a six month gig at AngelList, and uh, you know, just fell in love with it. 
Like we, very early on, we would bring entrepreneurs in, folks that were using the platform. And, you know, I've got a, a UX background. So we would bring those folks in, we would uh, run them through usability studies and um, get their take on the product and try to understand what their needs were. And, you know, as part of that process, you dig into their backgrounds and learn their stories. And, uh, you know, these are all people who are trying to make some kind of positive change in the world. And it just becomes inspiring to and highly motivating to, to just get up every morning and come in to the office and help them. And uh, that's what I was excited about with Angel. I just fell in love with it. And the six months came and went, and I ended up being, <laughs> being there for six years. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, as part, part of the story of, of Angelus, you know, we, we were very interested in, uh, crowdfunding, uh, as kind of another mechanic to accelerate the process of raising capital. And, uh, we did a bunch of work, uh, in 2012 to try to build support around something called the jobs act because general solicitation in the U S which, you know, was kind of related to crowdfunding to some extent, uh, that was illegal in the U S crowdfunding was essentially illegal in the U S prior to 2012, prior to the jobs act. And, uh, so when the jobs act came around, we were very excited to try to get behind that and build community support around it. Um, and we ended up, uh, that ended up being successful. So the jobs act was passed. Crowdfunding was ushered into the U S in the UK. You guys have had crowdfunding for a long time, but, uh, it's still a relatively new thing in the U S. And, uh, so we helped, you know, usher that into the U.S., which was exciting, and then spun out a, a company, a crowdfunding company called Republic that can win leads, and uh, those guys are doing great. Um, and then in 2016, 2017, we saw what was going on in the crypto space with uh, ICOs, and we felt like you know, that was a pretty exciting mechanic in terms of crowdfunding. It's almost a more pure form of crowdfunding in that you're looking not just for hundreds, but thousands of potential users or token holders or folks that have some kind of stake in the success of your enterprise. So we thought it had great applications, not just for crypto companies, but for uh, all kinds of technology companies. Um, but of course, at that time, there was uh, a ton of fraud, a lot of scams, a lot of projects out there that were just, uh, you know, you publish a white paper, or raise your 5 million BTC and then disappear in an afternoon. <laughs> So there's a little bit of that going on. Um, and so we were concerned about that. Uh, we were, we also had some relationships with folks on the regulator side in the US and, and uh, there was some talk about potentially shutting down um, investor, US investor access to ICOs in the same way that China had, had done. And so we, uh, we were pretty concerned about that, you know, just given Angelus background and the philosophy that we had there. You know, the idea that you're going to shut down a new emerging technology sector to access to U.S. capital, uh, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So we were, we were really concerned about that. And uh, yeah, came up with a framework to try to help legitimate teams in the space raise capital, do it compliantly, uh, build trust within the investor community. Uh, and we ended up partnering with a, a project called Protocol Labs and... Um, and the Protocol Labs team, uh, Juan and Jesse, very progressive thinking guys and great team. And uh, they're launching a, a they're launching Filecoin and uh, they wanted to do it compliantly. And so they partnered up with AngelList, formed a joint venture, which was called CoinList. And, uh, and so, yeah, we ran what we consider to be the first compliant token sale in the US. Um, 
using the compliance infrastructure that we built at AngelList, um, using the SAFT, which is a simple agreement for future tokens, which is somewhat of a standardized investment contract for these deals. So investors have something in their hands as, as like a, you know, a co- investment contract. And um, yes, yeah, so that was deemed to be very successful. That was in August 2017. Um, Filecoin team raised about 200 million using the SAFT and using uh, the compliance infrastructure that we that we built. And, uh, you know, because they raised so much money, um, I think they, they felt a lot of pressure to focus on Filecoin. And so, uh, Coinless became an AngelList project. And, uh, yeah, I was the COO at AngelList at the time, and we ended up deciding to spin Coinlist out as its own company. Uh, and that was in late 2017. And, uh, yeah, a handful of folks from AngelList uh, co-founded the company with me and, uh, Joshua Slayton, CTO, he's still with us. And uh, yeah, that's how we got started. Long story. No, no, I could, no. I could this, actually talk more. <laughs> no, this is, this is what it's all about. Um, you know, kind of understanding the story behind the project. And, you know, as you say, it's it's definitely an interesting one with its twists and turns. And so what the idea of spinning this out as a separate entity, was that to like partition? Because there are different risks, right? Different regulatory risks of, of running something that's purely yeah. crypto, especially out of the U.S., Versus AngelList was was that the thinking was to kind of partition AngelList from this? I'm imagining certainly at that point and potentially even today, you know, inherently more kind of complex from a regulatory perspective, a US regulatory perspective. Yeah, this, that's probably a small part of it. I think uh, if you know Navi and Naval, they're very much about creating independent entities, uh, creating or giving a lot of independence to. Uh, people within their circle, in terms of whether it's you know people who are part of their team or uh, folks they invest in, uh, so the, the, it's it's more of a philosophical approach than anything else. Uh, and then I guess you add on top of the fact that on top of that the fact that you know crypto is so unique and so you know independent in, in its own ways and uh, needed uh, a much bigger focus, which we didn't really feel like we could give it as as it being kind of a sub-project within AngelList. So uh, yeah, deserve, crypto, crypto deserves its own focus. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and so you, you mentioned at the top end, this kind of um, outdated perception as Coinless being primarily for US accredited. When, when did that change? 2019. And I think a lot of that was really, it really came from the market. It was less about anything that was strategic on our end. You know, we, we believe in the U.S. market. We, um, that's how we got our start. Uh, you know, not only did we start running these, uh, what they call Reg D 506C sales in the U.S., the accredited investor sales, uh, but we also uh, had a broker-dealer license. Uh, it was one of the first broker-dealer licenses that allowed a company to run private placements for digital assets. It was a very unique broker-dealer license. Uh, so we we and we got that specifically to focus on the U.S. market, uh, but you know we go where the market goes, and the issuers that we work with, the token projects that we work with, um, over time they became less confident in the U.S. regulatory uh, climate, and uh, started to go down the path of blocking U.S. participation or requesting that we block U.S. participation. Uh, again, we we were we had all the tools to allow them to target U.S. investors, 
but because of some of the uncertainty in the US market with respect to crypto assets potentially being viewed as securities in this market, um, that has some downstream implications for these for these protocols. Uh, you know, if, if a US regulator considers your asset to be a security, then it becomes very difficult to list that asset on a crypto exchange in the US. Um, and uh, there's, there's been a couple of projects that we've worked with that have kind of run into that challenge. And, uh, and so I think more and more teams just became more cautious with respect to that issue. Um, and so, yeah, in 2019, we started to see more and more teams um, blocking US participation or asking that we block US participation. Uh, and that's continued right the way through to today. Um, and so, you know, if you're not targeting the US, then you're targeting just about everywhere else. So, uh, US and China tend to be the the two countries that get that get blocked in the sales that we run. Um, and I guess the, you know, it was 20, 2019 when we started to see that change, though. Yeah. And I, I guess so. You know, as an accelerator, as a advisory around you know token issuance and stuff like that, we, there's certain things we can and do get actively involved in, and, and others um, which we kind of augment. But I would say almost default position now is to not sell to US persons, uh, certainly if you're like an earlier stage network. I don't know whether you're seeing that as a, a blanket principle. Um, and is it that projects that are not asking you to block US citizens, are they perhaps more later stage, more mature? They might actually already be listed elsewhere. Um, and then they're kind of looking to do a, a another sale but to us persons yeah it is blanket so all of the teams that we run token sales for are um choosing to block us participation and uh and again you know we do have the tools to be able to target us residents but we uh, at the request of the issues we don't do that um so yeah it's it's blanket uh it's unfortunate um you know we believe in the us market um, there are a lot of good reasons to have U.S. residents holding your tokens uh, pre-launch um, or at launch. And uh, yeah, we're working to, to see what we can try to do to change that perspective. Um, and we're working on that on a number of different levels. Um, you know, we're working with legislators to try to change, help change law, build support around that. Um, I think you guys may be aware of uh, crypto mom, Hester Peirce, um, SEC commissioner. So she came up with a proposal uh, some time ago now to uh, to have a, a three-year uh, token safe harbor for, for token issuers, uh, token developers. So you could raise capital uh, you know, via token sale or some other mechanic. Uh, and then within three years of, of that event, uh, you have to demonstrate that your network is sufficiently decentralized um, and uh, which is kind of a, a really good balance between protecting investors through a, a disclosure regime uh, and then giving developers the opportunity to, to do what they do best, which is innovate uh, and then give uh, you know, Americans the opportunity to participate in these, in these deals. So, um, so it was a really smart proposal. And uh, there's been some support amongst uh, Congress, some folks in Congress around that proposal and so we're working with folks to try to, to move that forward, but it's definitely going to be a, it's a bit of a bit of a long, slow burn to try to make anything happen there. 
but uh, but yeah, we're going to be working that. And you know, I, I would because you're trying to navigate it all. I wouldn't expect you to pass a comment, but I, I'll kind of say it for you. You can kind of nod or shake your head um, if you agree or disagree. But <laughs> it, 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 it does kind of feel like crypto's got quite politicized. You know, I think the Democrats actually surprisingly um, seem almost vehemently against against it, and I think um, you know perhaps. Uh, it, it looks like there is some kind of potential challenge to that from, from Republican side, but you know, look, putting politics aside, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that's mostly right. There's, there are definitely some folks on the Democratic side of the House that are supportive, and uh, there are some folks on the Republican side there that are, uh, you know, a little skeptical. So it's, but I think as a trend, that's mostly right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for us, it's just about trying to find folks that, that understand the industry, understand uh, or are willing to understand the industry um, and who support innovation and support job creation and all of those good things, because uh, that's what this industry is doing. And, um, and it's going to continue to do that for, for years and years. So, um, and, uh, but, you know, at the same time, there are lots of other markets out there. There's lots of other countries that, that are excited about participating in in this industry at these early stages. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, coinless goes on, but, uh, but yeah, at the same time, we, we definitely want to, uh, work out how we can try to engage the U S market. And, um, so yeah, so we're, we're working both angles. And look, you know, I, I think it's great testament to you guys that, you know, you, you've become a global player out of the U S which has been probably the hardest market to navigate, you know, especially for an early stage startup that kind of burden, um, and but the, the you know the cost associated with that burden of you know being first of of kind of navigating different structures and stuff. So you know uh, I think it's a good testament to you and the team. And clearly, um, whilst of course that's the holy grail, and honestly it feels inevitable at some point in the future. Uh, as I said, sadly I think it's uh, for some reason quite politicized, but it feels inevitable and, and clearly you guys are very well placed when that time arrives um, to kind of capitalize on that. So so let's talk about CoinList. You know, let's talk about the different business areas that you've got. As I said earlier, you've been enjoying great growth um, off air. I think you said you're at like one of the best measures of user bases, 28 day actives. Um, and I think you said... I had two numbers here. Was it 150K or 4.5 million? I had two numbers. I don't know why. So we, yeah, at the end of last year, we were at about 150,000 oh, 28 day actives. And now we're at four to four and a half million 28 day actives. So yeah, there's been a lot of growth. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's keeping us busy. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's, it's like uh, everybody will say, you know, good problems to have. But, but still problems, you know, it's uh, challenges uh, on our end trying to deal with that growth and uh, whether it's from an engineering system standpoint or a support system standpoint or, uh, you know, just internal processes trying to scale to the kind of volumes that we're seeing. It's, it's uh, these are some of the challenges that we have, you know, you know, we had 20, 25 people on the team at the start of the year and uh, it was, we're at about 80 to 85 in total now. Um, so there's, there's, you know, challenges in, in growing just internally as well. So, um, but yeah, it's fun. A lot and, of fun. And so this, this is the core kind of issuance platform, right? Um, but then you've got, 
other parts of the business you've got trading staking lending uh, yeah. it, might, it might actually be good if you could just make the distinction between coinless seed and i, I guess i don't know what you call it coin, coin, coinless main could you kind of break down the different <laughs> areas and, and how they interrelate to one another yeah yeah i think i think um you know it's been it's been kind of interesting going through the the fundraising process because when you talk with investors they're like well what what, what are you guys are you guys an exchange or are you a custody are you a lending to, like what are you and it's like the answer is uh none of the above and all of the above uh and uh it, you know I, I think i think what's kind of unique about us is that you know we're coming at this industry from a really different angle relative to a lot of the other centralized crypto platforms out there uh, you know, a lot of those platforms may have started out as uh, with a piece of technology like a wallet or an exchange, uh, and they were trying to acquire users and monetize them. Um, we really came at this industry from a different perspective, which is that uh, we believe we believe in this technology. We believe in the potential impact that this technology is going to have on the global economy, on software development, on so many different aspects of of life, and. Uh, you know, we believe that the best way to accelerate that advancement of that technology, of the set of technologies, is by finding the best teams in the space and helping them be successful. And that's really our focus. And so, the, the whether it's Coinless Seed, which I think um, I think Jamie you're familiar with through some of the outlier projects, but so Coinless Seed is is uh, kind of very early stage uh, you know, virtual demo day, as it were. We run that more or less every quarter. Uh, it's an initiative that was spearheaded by Mike Zyko, who heads sales and partnerships at, at Coinlist. And uh, it's been it's been very successful. A lot of great projects have come through that. Uh, but that's run like a demo day. So it's not it's not about token sales. It's, it's really just about introducing uh, early stage projects to uh, early stage crypto investors. And a lot of the deals end up being kind of more equity related as opposed to tokens. Uh, so it's it's a it's it's definitely a sort of different mechanic to to the token sale platform. The token sales is a funnel as well, I guess. Right? It's kind of that first site. So I think we've had probably yeah. one or two um, from across our cohorts go in there as they graduate um, the program, yeah. and I guess that's as you say, kind of like top of the funnel to to give your kind of wider investor base awareness of what's coming through the pipe. That's right. But, but really, yeah, our bread and butter has been um, high-quality token issuance. So running Filecoin-like uh, token sales and distributions. And uh, so that's really, that's essentially been our focus. Uh, but what we realized over time is that, you know, eventually these projects launch. And uh, when they launch, the project teams, the protocol teams need to distribute those tokens to those investors who participated in those sales or VC rounds or what have you. And that is a massive pain for the projects to, to take take on. And uh, it's a logistical challenge. It's you know, customer support. It's technical support. It's an accounting exercise. So, uh, so we said, hey, we can handle distributions for you. you know, we have all the investors on the platform. Uh, we could try to build a custody solution. We've you know, integrated with BitGo, uh, Coinbase Custody, Gemini Custody, Finoa, which is a great European custodian that we work with, um, Anchorage. So we, we've got a bunch of custody partnerships. So we can handle token distributions for you. And that's what we ended up doing next, handling token distributions. Then we realized that 
look, all these investors are coming to the platform to get their tokens. Rather than just have them just send those tokens off to Binance or somewhere else, we could we could help them do what they want to do with those tokens on CoinList. Uh, and so, and what what do they want to do with their tokens? They either want to trade them or they want to earn some kind of yield. And so, whether it's through staking or lending, so we ended up then going ahead and building out uh, trading venues. We've got our own spot exchange, Coinless Pro. Uh, we also have mobile apps, and you can do some sort of Coinbase style easy trading on on Coinless.co. Uh, so we have a number of trading venues, and then we ended up also building out staking services. We're partnering with a, a number of different staking service providers, uh, as well as Lending Desk. And so you could do all of these things all in the one place. And that's what we're continuing to do as well. We're trying to find new ways that we can help token holders take advantage of the fact that they have their tokens, they have them here on CoinList, they're vesting on CoinList, they're unlocking on CoinList. Uh, and so more recently, we just built out a governance service that uh, Spencer Huang, one of the great guys from the team, uh, has, has championed with uh, Michelle Fang, one of our great engineers. And uh, so they they built out the service. Uh, Leo Gallet as well has been working on that. And uh, yeah, governance being kind of obviously one of the one of the most important things for for these ecosystems. Uh, and we've seen some some really awesome adoption there uh, with that governance product. I mean, typically you may see in any voting event somewhere between one and five percent of all participants uh, or all token holders in an ecosystem voting. And uh, in some of the early tests that we've run, we've seen 60% participation. So we're really happy with with what we're doing there, just driving uh, high quality, engaged token holders into these into these protocols, uh, into these communities. So really excited about that. Yeah, and to give some context on the numbers, I don't have like total number raised to the issuance platform, but I know you've done um, one billion dollars, um, or it's increased to one billion dollars in trading volume, monthly trading volume. Um, in 2021, um, average monthly traders is 8x. Um, I think you've got uh, 67 trading pairs. That's probably gone up now on Coinless Pro. Uh, $3 billion in assets staked um, and over $130 million in staking rewards, right? So it's, it's pretty significant. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's like a testament to the community that we've built. You know, like we've got, uh, like a large community of early stage, really engaged crypto enthusiasts, and these are people that are—they're gutsy. You know, they're making a commitment to these protocols before these things are listed on any exchange, and uh, you know, they're—they're they're making those kinds of commitments, and then they end up following through on that by, you know, engaging in transactions, whether it's staking, whether it's trading, and. Uh, you know, a lot of them are doing it with us. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's testament to that community. Um, and, and I think a, a lot of it's due to the fact that, you know, we really try to focus on building trust within that ecosystem. Um, you know, I think trust is such a, such a big challenge in crypto. There are so many scams out there that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty rare that you find, <laughs> it's pretty rare that you find platforms that are trustworthy. So trust has been such a big part of a focus, which is why, you know, right from the beginning, we were very focused on compliance, and and still, it's still very core to our brand. So, uh, you know, having that trust within the community, having that community be so active, um, is uh, I think that's that's definitely generating some nice results for us. Bull market helps too. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or rising tides, but still, you know, I mean, I think, right. um, you know, that kind of increased service offering that you've got going out across the business, it clearly is sticky. But you know where this kind of naturally leads me to ask a question, right? Which is, yeah. you've got all these engaged token buyers um, that yeah. you're, you're enabling them to participate in governance. Yeah. Um, where do you as an organization go in that context? Is is this the uh, when coinless token question? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, you know, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um, you it's, a great, you it's a great question. Right now, course, you know, but. It's a great question. Well, you know, I, one thing I would say is that, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this uh, program that we've created recently called Coinless Karma. But uh, we're really excited about it. Coinless yes. Karma, it's like, it's like a loyalty program, but you get rewarded based on your activity, um, you know, to the extent that you're positively contributing to the success of protocols, you know, if you're participating in uh, governance, if you're uh, a validator and are participating in one of our validator programs, if you're a developer participating in one of our hackathons, you end up earning uh, karma. And uh, the karma points give you greater rights, or at least a, a clearer path to participating in uh, token sales on on Coinless through what we call a priority queue. So if you've got high comma points, you're able to to get into the priority queue. You've got a much greater chance of getting access to to a, a spot in one of the offerings on the platform if you're in the priority queue. So uh, so that's become really popular, and that's that's the question that we get asked: is <laughs> when when are you creating the the Coinless Karma token? Yeah, and um, so it's uh, you know it's a conversation. For sure, <laughs> right. I'm not going to. I'm not going to speak you <laughs> anymore on that one. I think, but 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 actually, it's an interesting point because if we go back to the U.S. context, right, a big debate is, well, you know, there is no utility. People are just speculating on these assets. Nobody's actually actively participating in the network. I mean, here is a very clear pathway to be able to demonstrate. Well, no, actually, you know, this is a good actor. They're an active network participant. Um, and therefore, perhaps yeah. as a U.S. citizen, they should be allowed to participate in these networks. They've demonstrated a high technical proficiency or, or, or whatever else. Yeah, I think, you know, Karma, I hope other teams or protocols or uh, folks out there in the community either pick up on Karma or try to emulate it. Because I think it's solving a really important problem for, for the industry. And Vitalik has been talking about this a little bit, which is, you know, the idea that, when we think about governance in the context of these protocols, a lot of the power ends up going just to those folks that have lots of coin. And you know that's that's definitely a, a model and it's not a terrible model, but you know arguably, you want to be able to empower folks that are contributing to projects in other ways. So if you're a developer, you're committing a bunch of commits on, on GitHub, or if you're you know, a validator, you're not necessarily holding a massive what of tokens like VC might, but you're still contributing to the success of these protocols, you should have uh, some sort of additional reward or additional leverage in terms of governance, additional weighting. And uh, that's a massive problem for a lot of these protocols. Uh, you know, it ends up meaning that governance just kind of looks, it looks ridiculous. You know, you just have a handful of folks that hold uh, large chunks of tokens, um, you know, taking over 
a lot of the, the voting events. And so these things just don't, these systems just don't look decentralized when that is the case. And so a mechanism like Karma, I think, starts to level that out a bit. So, uh, and whether it's Karma or some other mechanic that gets developed uh, beyond CoinList, uh, you know, excited for those kinds of systems to get developed because I think they're better for the ecosystem. Well, look, I know at the top end of this, I said, look, let's try and keep it within 30 minutes. We blasted straight through that. We're like four of 50 minutes, which again is a sign of a good time. Um, I, we can keep um, going. Let's keep yeah, going. Yeah, well, you know, we need to get some beers in if we're going to do that. And then you're going to sound more Australian and I'm going to sound more Mancunian and it will be unrecognizable. So uh, there you go, mate. Beauty. I, I think we need to, to save that for when you come and visit your brother in, in the UK next. So, you know. Awesome, man. COVID allowing, um, we, we can we can get a few beers on. Um, Graham, it. it's been fascinating talking to you. You know, you are definitely a kind of positive actor in the space, both generally and in our ecosystem. So we, we, we really enjoy working with you. We hear nothing but good things from our portfolio companies that do it. Likewise, Jamie. Appreciate and, everything that you're doing. You know, look, c- congrats on your, your, your growth. You know, and I, I think, as I said, it's... Um, I would highly recommend people watch what CoinList is doing. Great barometer on the market and um, the kind of projects that are being listed, you know, we know go through you know, very deep due diligence and, and come with kind of a, not investment advice, but like, you know, it, it's certainly a good kind of curation system over there. Jamie, appreciate you. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks, Graham. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.